Hi everyone. It's so good to be here this morning, and um, and I'm really glad that we're going through the Book of James for a few weeks. You know, it's it's a, a favourite um, part of the Bible of mine. It's got very many special memories uh, about my personal journey. Um, so I'm so glad uh, to be able to share with you today. And also want to add, uh, Mason's just run out, but I, I want to add my um, birthday wishes to Mason as well. You know, um, sure, sometimes he gets somebody's age wrong, but this guy works so hard and he makes it look so easy. So uh, we, can, we can forgive him for that. And, you know, don't worry about what other people say. I think you are looking great for 60. <laughs> Let's get started. We just heard from Anna. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry. How do you like that? That is such practical good advice, isn't it? Like, is this James from the Bible or James from play school? Okay, everyone, let's put on our listening ears and wiggle all our angries away. This is the part of the Bible that all the parents read and go, okay, yeah, tell me. How can I make my kids be like this? But imagine how different our world would be if these skills of listening and being slow to angry, slow to become angry, were lacked only by children. I've learned this about myself over the years, and I suspect many have, that we know that most of us, for at least some of the time, are slow to listen, quick to speak, and very quick to get angry, aren't we? That's pretty standard fare. There is no doubt that our culture has big anger issues. In fact, if everyone were to just suddenly become slow to anger overnight, we would probably wake up to an economic recession because anger and outrage is big business. Editors, advertisers, and politicians know that if you can make people angry, you can control them to some degree. So when James comes out saying everyone should be slow to anger, this is not just a clean yourself up and become a respectable citizen kind of deal. He's giving us a vision of a radically new way of living together. And before James tells us to be slow to anger, he says, be quick to listen. And that is just as important. We've seen in the Psalms earlier this year that our God is a God who hears. He hears the cry of the afflicted and takes it in hand. Our God is a listening God. The question is, church, are we a listening people? Too many times, victims of abuse have tried to speak up and have not been listened to, even blamed for what was done to them. Too often, when someone cries out because of an injustice, we are slow to listen to them and quick to discredit them. Brooke Prentice of the organisation Common Grace reflects on it this way. 
As followers of Jesus, we are called to love. But if you claim to love someone without listening to them first, that's just deception. It's like what we read in 1 John chapter 4. If you don't love your brother and sister who you have seen, how can you say you love God who you have not seen? Listening is difficult, isn't it? It requires a lot of practice. But James says we are double-minded and fool ourselves if we think we can hear the word of God while ignoring the distress of the widow and orphan, of whoever in our midst is most vulnerable and easiest to dismiss. Because until we learn to listen to both God and neighbour, we'll fail to hear either. So quick to listen and slow to anger, they must go together. Because when we are listening well to our neighbour, sometimes we're going to hear stuff that makes us angry. And the feeling of anger is a healthy emotional response to destructive behaviour. Like if you see one person treating another person like dirt, you are right to feel angry about that. If you see someone in a position of authority manipulating and exploiting those under them, you are absolutely right to feel angry. In fact, if we see that stuff and we don't get angry and we turn a blind eye to it, we've become complicit to some degree, haven't we? Because scripture tells us these are the exact kind of behaviours that stir up God's anger. Now, uh, God doesn't fly off into a rage just because somebody dissed him or ignored him or because they sat down to a meal and said the short version of grace instead of the full-length official one. Uh, Which, if you're curious about that short grace, uh, we learned it from Tom and Kelly. It goes like this. Heavenly pa ta. That's a, thank you for that, guys. That is a, a real time saver. But God is no rageaholic. He is consistently described as being slow to anger. This is even one of the key ways that he describes himself to Moses that we read in Exodus chapter 34. And fun fact, when our English Bibles say God is slow to anger... The literal translation of that from the Hebrew is God has a long nostril. That's pretty funny, right? It's, it's from a cultural idiom in that culture when someone gets angry, they're said to have a hot nose. Like you can picture it, you know, when you see someone that's really mad, you can see it in their, in their nostrils. They sort of like flare up and there's all this heat coming out of them like a bull that's charging. But God's nostrils are long, so it takes them a long time to heat up. Anyway, I just thought that was kind of funny. But the point is, God God does get angry at human abuse. He never turns a blind eye like we often do. But his anger is tempered by a huge amount of patience and mercy. 
Now, after all this, you might rightly feel that being quick to listen and slow to anger is actually a bigger ask than what we can handle. But just remember, all James is really saying is that we need to be like God. Feel better now? (laughs) Because if this is our good advice, it's bad news, right? Because who can live up to that standard? So what we really need is not more good advice, but good news. And as I was saying, it is right to feel angry when faced with a wrong. But the problem is, as James points out, anger does not produce righteousness. It doesn't fix anything. God is committed to solving and righting every wrong. He desires righteousness. He longs for right relationships between people. And if we are his people, then so must we. But anger can't do it. That has to be off the table. No amount of anger can ever heal broken relationships, only tear them further apart. And you know why anger is so deadly? Because it's so convenient. It's always ready at hand and instantly gratifying and addictive. As the old saying goes, to the one who has only a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But James wants us to know the good news that God has made a way, a better way. preacher and civil rights activist Martin Luther King had much to be angry about and if you listen to his story you'll see what a massive understatement that is but he insisted that acting on anger is never the way when speaking out about against the Vietnam War which he pointed out was filling the nation's homes with widows and orphans he said this Peace is not some distant goal that we seek, but it is the means by which we arrive at that goal. Anger does not produce righteousness, James tells us. But as he continues in chapter 3, peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. So as we wait in hope, for all the wrongs in the world to be made right. Let us be encouraged as we fix our eyes on the Prince of Peace, who is the Lord of the Harvest. There are three things that I want to highlight today, and this is the first. What we need most is not good advice, but good news. And the good news is that God has made a way to right every wrong in the world. So that leads us to ask, what is that way? Well, James tells us, as we heard, to look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continue in it, doing what it says. What is this perfect law? He sums it up in the next chapter. 
love your neighbor as yourself. Be as devoted to caring for the needs of others as you are about feeding and clothing your own body. That is the word planted in you which can save you. And there's a reason James tells us to look continually and with intent. Because if we only glance at this law, all we see is just another law. One more unattainable ideal. And sure, love your neighbor as yourself, that sounds great. But honestly, who can afford to live that way all the time? I mean it, and not as a rhetorical question. Who can afford to live that way? Loving your neighbor as yourself, even when your neighbor treats you like dirt in return. Cashing in your privileges and advantages just to be able to prioritize and lift up the disadvantaged. Refusing to compromise on this way of love, even when it means being disowned by your family, abandoned and betrayed by your closest friends, slandered and wrongfully accused. Uh, I'm, I'm really not selling it right now, am I? But I'm just telling the story of Jesus' life. Because in every culture and every age, living this way has always posed an imminent threat to the status quo. And anyone who loves like Jesus loves will face opposition from powerful places. Here's the thing, though. Did you notice that we often ask who can live this way as though there is some better alternative sitting there waiting to be chosen? But do we actually know a better way to live? All of our lives, different though they may be, have one thing in common. We all end up as dust. But Jesus, the one person who did live perfectly according to this way of love, has a life that overpowers death and never fades. I mean, come on. If that is not our definition of a successful life, what is? I, I really don't know how you can top that. And if you know of someone whose life has produced better results than Jesus did, we should probably change the sign out the front of the building and talk about that instead. But right now, I just want to put this idea out there. Could it be that Jesus is actually a lot more practical than what we give him credit for? In fact, I would even say he is the most practical person to have ever walked the earth. Sure, his methods were unconventional, but look at his results. I mean, whatever he did, you've got to say, it worked. Jesus says he knows the way to life. And who else can make such a bold claim and then actually back it up? I don't know of anywhere else that we could go we would hear such words of everlasting life. Do you know, the law of Moses was given to 12 tribes gathered at the foot of a mountain. 
This perfect law that gives freedom was given to 12 gathered around a table. Just a few hours before his arrest, Jesus shared a meal with his closest friends and passed a cup around and said, I'm making a covenant with you. My promise of unending loyalty and friendship to you, which I guarantee by my own lifeblood. This covenant promise means that Jesus is not demanding allegiance and then punishing those who fail him. No, it means that even when we fail him, he only ever draws us closer, never pushes us away. And if this covenant is guaranteed by the life of one who has conquered death, then we can be certain that Jesus' loyalty will outlast all of our failures. We read about this scene in John chapter 13 where Jesus says to those sitting around the table, You are my disciples when you love one another as I have loved you. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So you can imagine that as James is sitting down and writing his letter, that he's just reflecting on this prior event. When he writes, Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do it, they will be blessed in what they do. See, this is no detached wisdom principle or some optional extra that you add to your faith. James is repeating to us the very words and commands of Jesus, drawing us into the promise and hope of the gospel. And that's the second thing I want to highlight today. The good news is that Jesus knows the way to life and has demonstrated it fully in his life devoted to neighborly love. Now I encourage you to listen out as we continue reading James over the next few weeks because you'll hear the very same words of the good news that Jesus announced in Luke chapter 4 and elsewhere. Good news for the poor, the arrival of Jubilee, and a perfect law that brings freedom to the oppressed. But today, our final question is this. If Jesus knows the way to life, how do we learn it? To answer that, look at the way Jesus teaches. He doesn't seem very interested in simply getting people to agree with him. He wants people to walk with him, to imitate him and learn his ways and practice them. Do you remember the mission that Jesus gave to the church at the end of the Gospel of Matthew? Was it go into all nations and make converts? No. It was go into all nations and make disciples. And the difference between making converts and making disciples, that's the difference between a law that brings freedom and a law that enslaves Because a disciple can't become a disciple just by what they agree with or what they learn in a book or hear in a sermon. Now, a disciple is basically like what we would call an apprentice. Now, 
Do we have any, any tradies in the house? Ex-tradies? Yep. Yeah. Good. I've got a question for you. If you're at a work site and an apprentice puts down their tools and grabs a cup of tea and says to their boss, I believe that everything you've taught me is true and I have complete faith in you. So let me know when you've done the work and then I'll praise you for doing such a good job. Tell me, is it going to end well for that apprentice? I'm, I'm sure at most, I, I've never been a tradesperson myself, but I'm sure at most work sites uh, at this point the boss will calmly and patiently take the apprentice aside and just explain to them why they should never, ever, ever try that one again. But for the apprentice, true faith is expressed in the way that they humbly accept the word of instruction from their boss and do it, imitating them, doing what they do so that they can learn to produce the same quality of results. Do you know that the early Christians, before Christian was even a word, they were not called people of the book. They were called people of the way. So if we want to learn from Jesus, it is very helpful to read and talk about him, but like an apprentice. We only truly learn his way by doing. In every day, there are opportunities, small and large, where we can choose to act in neighborly kindness toward those around us. And you know what? Sometimes that's going to feel too costly. Other times, Jesus' way is going to seem just so counterintuitive. And that's where faith kicks in. That's where we say to Jesus, I'm going to trust you that your way is the best way. And here's also where a community of faith becomes invaluable where we can really encourage each other and share in each other's burdens and in each other's joy. Because every time we do that, in those acts of being an apprentice, it won't matter so much whether we succeed or fail, because in those moments we will know Jesus a little better and see ever clearer how good our Lord and teacher really is. That's the final thing I want to highlight today. How do we learn the way to life? By doing, imitating Jesus in neighborly love while putting our trust in him, in the one who has gone before us and walks with us. Santa Claus wants us to be good for goodness sake. But Jesus will produce in us and through us a goodness that is for the sake of of our neighbour. A goodness that is its own reward to those who persevere. A crown of life, like Mason told us about last week. There is nothing more practical or worthwhile that you will ever spend your time on than learning how to love like Jesus loves. 
Because when this perfect law of liberty is truly put into action, it compels us to act toward the freedom of any of our neighbours who have been robbed of it. And when the last, the lost and the least are restored to dignity and community through neighbourly love, all of us are. It's good news because Jesus is a good teacher. He never asks us to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. And he never asks us to do anything bad, even if it's for a good cause. The good news is that our success rests not on our own merits or efforts, but on his faithfulness. His promise stands regardless of what you struggle with on the inside or what others put you through on the outside. His unbreakable promise of loyal love stands for anyone who sets their heart on practicing his way of love. Please uh, pray with me while the music team comes up. Our Heavenly Father, when we catch a glimpse of who you are, what you're like and what you've done for us, and we see your nature in Jesus perfectly revealed, it's, it is amazing, amazingly good. And if you have promised to lead us to that place, to lead us to life. We thank you and want to accept your offer. Help us to look to you even when this seems too difficult, to know that you have overcome. You have gone before us and walk with us. Amen.